0: Uh, All right, my name is uh, Julie Hozier. I am a musician, a a painter, and sometimes a writer. I work for the Industrial Worker, which is the newspaper of the industrial workers of the world. So I first heard about the IWW through, uh, I guess, just like where any other awkward American kid learns about it in, in in a history class. It's always painted as one of the more radical uh, forms of unionization, uh, talking about it's, it's in the uh, communist movement in America. And there was something about the, the tenets of the IWW that uh, intensely appealed to me. Because uh, at that time, I was kind of forming my political beliefs, you know, what I thought you know, was really going on in the world. And uh, I'm a student now, and I'm majoring in political science. And so now that I'm under, like, an intense study of uh, this kind, I've come to the conclusion that an anarcho-syndicalist would be able to uh, benefit the working class.
1: Yeah, so I just have a question, too, because, like, I studied history in college, so, like, how was the—this is something that's, like, a personal interest to me—how was the IWW portrayed to you at first in those history books? Like, Usually it kind of gets portrayed in a more negative light, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was portrayed, you know, pretty negatively. It was... Uh, around that time, we were also taught about, like, the Red Scare and then Sacco and Vanzetti and all these, uh, these martyrs of the anarchist and communist movements. And it was always painted as some sort of uh, just, you know, radical rabble-rousers. I mean, I grew up in the, the Alabama school system, and so the the teachers were almost always conservative, almost always Christian, almost always white. And so there was that viewpoint sort of forced onto the neutrality of uh, history. And with that, you know, communists, socialists, and uh, anarchists were kind of just seen as, you know, uh, again, I mean, rabble-rousers and, you know, no-good mix.
1: Yeah, that's that's been my experience, too. And one of the other things I always notice about how more radical unions, whether it's the IWW or you know, like the, the women's garment union, um, they tend to be portrayed, like their the role that they played in labor history tends to be like massively underplayed. And like, you know, the IWW and its organizing strategies I think have been massively influential, not just like on the labor movement itself, but on, but on, you know, subsequent movements for whether it's civil rights or, you know, any, all those movements that have come down. I, I mean, no,
0: no doubt, no doubt. I mean, even looking at now, uh, Sarah Nelson, who is the uh, one of the leaders of the uh, flight attendant union, and is vowing for uh, leadership within the AFL-CIO, she is open to tenets of you know industrial unionism and solidarity unionism. And you're totally right about you know the women's garments unions and uh, you know women garments workers being massively, massively you know underrepresented within labor history. I mean, we didn't even learn about the Lawrence strike and even if we did it was probably just like a sentence or two in what we were taught. And it was one of the biggest general strikes that America has ever seen.
1: Yeah, no, they they played a massive part in, you know, multiple important strikes that have, you know, been foundational to the way US labor law works basically. And like I was going I want to ask too like so after getting this sort of history like where did you turn to next? Like where did you go to I guess, you know, Learn, learn a little more.
0: Well, I took to political organizing, I'll tell you. I was involved with the uh, local chapter of Democratic Socialists of America for about a year. By the end of that year, I was the head chair of the local uh, Young Democratic Socialists of America chapter. I learned a lot about you know, organization and, and labor organization through that experience. And, and I'm you know, completely thankful for that. I left DSA because I don't necessarily agree with what's happening uh, with national leadership. But I I still think that experience that I had is...
1: uh... Yeah, and like, I guess with the IWW, you don't necessarily have that same sort of structure where there is the national leadership that you could disagree with. Like, how do you think that has... Do you think that was part of the appeal for you?
0: Yeah, in a sense. Uh, I mean, the IWW is a very decentralized thing, even though we're trying to be, you know, the one big union. The only experience I've had with, you know, the administrative branch, which is, I guess, Chicago, was when uh, Birmingham, where I live, a uh, couple of Birmingham Wobblies were trying to form a IWW chapter and, uh, you know, they get it chartered, but Chicago's got to. But, really, that's the only experience that I've heard of with uh, with a central sort of leadership.
1: And something, like, I wanted to ask you about, you know, when you went up to that IWW event. Like, was, um, like, what was that like? We all have pictures in our heads of
0: our outfits and, you know, green and, you know, black berets and, and fist raised in the air. But when I went to the IWW meeting, I just saw common laborers, in their work clothes, people with tattoos out, people with, you know, piercings. Visibly uh, uh, queer people like myself. It, was, it wasn't a unifying aesthetic for working people, and that the IWW was designed to serve working people like us.
1: Yeah, and I guess towards that end, that explains, you know, one of the things you've been involved with is the IWW songbook, and I think that like, emphasis on, you know, songs is something that Speaks to the, the interest in politics of the working, like of it being a working class institution.
0: Oh yeah, no doubt. Um, thank you for giving
1: me the opportunity to speak about that, by the way. So. Oh no, for sure, uh, it was really interesting.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, no. So I, I, am the chief architect of a, uh, of an archival project under the Industrial Worker. It's called the One Big Songbook, and the contest for that, the context uh, rather, was that there. Has the, been this piece of literature that has been basically the backbone of the IWW, if not the whole of the culture of the IWW, and that is the Little Red Songbook, and that's basically just a a red uh, pamphlet sort of thing that contains, you know, union um, popular songs of the time. Uh, this being, you know, the early 1900s, they have, you know, racist and sexist origins, but Others were based on Salvation Army tunes. So even then, the culture of the IWW relied on the interests of, and, you know, many a, many a writer had their songs, uh, including the Little Red Songbook, uh, Ralph Chaplin, who wrote Solidarity Forever, Harry McClintock, who wrote uh, Hallelujah, I'm a Bum, and Big Rock Canyon Mountain. So, I guess with that, I'm trying to include all editions of that, you know, sort of book, that
1: pamphlet. Yeah, and what are some of, like, the songs you found in your research that, like, speak, that, like, you know, maybe you think people should know more about because they speak to these issues that we're talking about? Well,
0: beyond the songs that, you know, pretty much every IWW knows, again, like, The Preacher and the Slave and and Solidarity Forever... We find a lot of uh, songs and poems calls against uh, oil barons like uh, John D. Rockefeller and steel barons like Andrew Carnegie, uh, songs that are titled like an ode to 1909 or an ode to 1910. And it's, uh, uh, it, sometimes it's archaic language, uh, you know, times in these songs. But again, it's a very like, time-specific piece. We try to catalog these songs. We're trying to, I guess, document the history around the work as well as within the work because we see these archaic languages, we see these references to uh, communists and uh, capitalist interests around that time.
1: Yeah. And something else I wanted to ask about too is like you mentioned earlier that you, you know, you've encountered a, sl- a lot of songs in other languages. And like, you know, maybe like what are some of the other like, languages and in- songs that you've encountered because you know the IWW was one of the was one of the unions that you know especially at the turn of the last century you know the America had a lot of various immigrants coming in to, to do you know various kinds of work and most of the time they didn't speak English and the IWW of course tried to organize by you know having organizers in every language on the various job sites they were organizing on so like what kind of songs did you come across in, in other languages like that? Oh,
0: I'll tell you all of our work with, uh, foreign languages we couldn't have done without, uh, the help of other comrades, uh, in this work. Uh, namely, uh, fellow worker Rachel from Sacramento, who gave me that, uh, uh archived thing of Finnish, you know, IWW songs. And from what I could tell, I can't read Finnish. But, uh, it was, it was found at the Island Lomax collection of uh, manuscripts. Alan Lomax was one of the great uh, archivists of uh, folk music, and we see uh, Finnish versions of Waken, uh, Workers of the World, Awake, Awaken." And I'm not able to pronounce Finnish uh, at any point. And we, <laughs> sorry, I'm am I'm, I'm a bit tongue twisted. I'm not able to oh, no worries. You know, translate Finnish into English at any point, but there is like some English uh, smitterings within this work, and we see uh, songs like Hold the Fort and you know Workers of the World Awaken, and this is just in the Finnish version. I wouldn't be surprised if there were Spanish versions or Chinese versions because there were a lot of Chinese uh, immigrant workers in the West around that time, and the IWW was mainly in the West. I wouldn't be surprised if there were Hebrew versions and, and German versions and French versions. Like you said, the IWW uh, was a sort of movement that organized uh, workers that other unions really didn't want to organize. The uh, AFL was uh, characterized by racist leadership and would not uh, organize what they called unskilled laborers. The IWW, uh, you know, fostered racial solidarity and tried to organize... uh, unskilled workers like, I don't know, the women's garment workers and truck workers. And even now we see organization of those that they still call, again, unskilled in fast food. We've seen movements in Jimmy John's, in Starbucks, and in Pacific Northwest burger chains such as Burgerville and Little Big Burger. And these have mostly been successful. In prison and work so that's as well. Why I think...
1: Sorry, what was that? In prison workers as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. Prison work is the I W O C, and so with that we see a sort of international solidarity form because I W W is meaning to organize the team rather than the masses who have and are in our in their mind skilled.
1: Yeah, and I I just wanted to go back a sec to um, you know, you mentioned um your comrades helping you with like the tra- like um finding work in other languages and helping, you know, get that together. And that like, to me, that really mirrors like the way the IWW has traditionally worked. And like, I just wanted to ask, like, has the the project been coming together in that way too?
0: Still in a very early stage. Uh, It was just announced about two weeks ago and we had a great amount of volunteers uh, come and email the industrial worker to offer their services. We've had folks with uh, degrees in labor history we've had musicians, we've had wave designers, we even had David Rovix, who's one of the greater uh, anarchist songwriters of the 21st century, offer his services. And so, for the the time frame that I'm looking at, which is a couple of years, it's going along uh, just fine. But right now it is still at a very early stage.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's an exciting project to support and get involved with, again, because the IWW has such a such a long history both you know organizing workers and in this kind and you know the songbook itself the little red Songbook, has such a such like a long history like so what so like what like recent songs do you do you see as being part of this tradition
0: well recently uh again i'll go back to david rovix uh we see a lot of uh anarchists be uh Anarchist songwriters, you know, try to waive the sort of tradition of, you know, the Little Red Songbook. David Rovix, uh, again, being one. And I guess you would also include Rage Against the Machine, which is obviously uh, a lot of their members were libertarian socialists and supported the Zapatistas. Uh, I guess you would include them as well. Just uh, protest music is just uh, (laughs) – I'm sorry. Protest music – just it's kind of lessened now i think but we we still have our vanguard i suppose or people who have you know held the line as long as they have folks like uh ann feeney and uh billy bragg and uh, tom morello and david robix
1: yeah no i definitely feel like it's still um still a movement like a tradition that's out there alive and you know maybe not as famous as some of the pop stars or anything but definitely still out there if you look in the right places i guess you know like in terms of like what do you see as like the effect and like the role of this this um the songs in like iww culture like what have you seen about that that you think well been uh, important?
0: A, many a great modder for the iww took to uh poetry and song if you're not aware of the story of joe hill he was uh, he was born in sweden and he immigrated to the United States not knowing a lick of English, and he took uh, petty jobs, and uh, he was one of those unorganized, unskilled workers who joined the IWW uh, to help get a better life for himself and for his fellow workers. And he was always a poetic type, and he did write poetry and songs that were, you know, non-radical. I I can't remember the name of any of them right now, but I'm sure one of them will come to me. But... He was possibly one of the greatest songwriters of his generation, and I'm glad that he uh, belonged to the Industrial Workers of the World. Again, he wrote songs like uh, The Preacher and the Slave, uh, The Rebel Girl, Workers of the World Awaken, uh, the, the Tramp. Yeah. yeah, The Tramp. And uh, he was framed uh, for a murder in the state of Utah and was found guilty uh, by a pretty much a kangaroo court and uh, even the president at that time, I think it was President Wilson, pleaded Utah to you know let Joe Hill go, but they wouldn't do it, and they shot him dead. And you know that sort of story uh, led Earl Robinson, I think, to uh, write you know Joe Hill. You know I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night alive as you and me. And so even in his death, Joe Hill is inspiring these these great you know anarchists, uh, socialist works. Of art and literature,
1: yeah, for sure. Like when you mentioned, um, I dreamed I, saw, when you mentioned I saw you. Oh my god, when you mentioned, um, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. I was reminded of I think there's a clip on like YouTube of Paul Robeson singing that to the workers building the Sydney Opera House in Australia, and you know you see that, <laughs> you see like the way this stuff has lived on for so long, despite. You know, it not perhaps getting the backing of the various capitalist presses and uh, (laughs) uh, publicity agents. Yeah, I mean, even
0: uh, even without, you know, the capitalist interests and, you know, supporting these works, they still get around. I mean, that song, I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill last night, it was sung by Paul Robeson. It was also sung by the likes of uh, Joan Baez and Bruce Springsteen. Because I think these songs touch uh the hearts of working people, and capitalism can't buy our hearts, you know
1: yeah, totally, and like what in like in addition to music, like what else do you see, whether it's in i w w history or the present or just art art arts in general, like what else do you see having that kind of effect do you think
0: I think what I see in the work of the i w w uh is kind of a unique phenomena. I think we have, you know, again, a rich history of storytellers like Joe Hill and and Utah Phillips and Joe Glazer fuse with the radicality of the politics of those like Debs and uh, Goodman and uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Big Bill Haywood and Ginger Goodwin. I think that because the IWW has constantly shed its blood and its tears and its work into the organizing of the working people that it has a strong connection to the hearts of working people. I mean, there are, like a, there are about uh, 9,000 uh, current members both in good and bad standing in the North American Regional Administration and obviously that pales in comparison to the hundreds of thousands who were part of the IWW in the early 20th century. But people, I think, still remember its history fondly. Uh, If you're not like a cop or like an FBI agent or, you know, the descendants of one, the IWW, I guess, meant something to you. It didn't dilute its uh, need to serve the working people. You know, everybody who I know has a family member who is a union member, belongs to the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers or the the Firefighters Union or, you know, just stuff like that. Union solidarity still exists to an extent, and I think the the mechanisms which allowed the IWW to thrive still are present in that sort of union culture today. We still believe, I guess union members still believe, that solidarity is key. That direct action is key, that strike action is key in some cases, sabotage is key, and with that, there is a sort of uniqueness within the culture of the i w w because it's sort of the background of what we came to be in unionism, just general unionism
1: right, and that like um, militant stance of the i w w you know is one of the reasons why it'll like it faced such harsh repression, you know, whether it was during like World War One and the subsequent Red Scare, you know, like I think pretty much every FBI, every IWW office in in the country at the time during World War One was probably raided by, you know, the FBI and the or the police or whatever to, you know, you know, get the member, get the list of members or whatever, because, you know, the IWW was seen as a massive threat because, you know, it preached that international solidarity and pacifism in the face of a a global war which pitted worker against worker um, just across national boundaries and you know like that that kind of internationalism i like think sometimes today is is much lacking
0: yeah that's right but i still think that the spirit of solidarity is still alive i recently read a post where a union member who was undocumented used his one phone call uh, from deportation uh, to contact his union, and a bunch of the union members got him out. I think the spirit of solidarity still lives, even though it is not the, the sort of radical solidarity that the IWW presented at that time when they were facing massive repression.
1: Yeah, so like, I wanted to ask you too, like, you know, you mentioned you write and do do music, so like, how do you see? How does that influence? How does um what we just talked about for the last like, thirty or forty minutes? How does that all come to like? How does that influence you and in your and what you do?
0: Well, when I was with uh, the DSA chapter, like I mentioned, we would do community picnics. We would go out to uh, parks where houseless people were staying, and we would you know make food and uh, serve them food. And more often than not, when I was not serving food, I would be playing uh, songs, union songs on my guitar to sort of to sort of grab people in. I was I was learning all these songs from, you know, Pete Seeger and uh, Woody Guthrie and Utah Phillips and Joe Hill and Ralph Chaplin and Harry McClintock uh, to sort of seeing the praises of, of the union and also generally uh, socialism and anarchism. Because uh, this chapter was much more radical than national leadership. We were really just a bunch of anarchists, and some of us were Marxist-Leninists. But in the end, we still had all the same goals. We wanted capitalism to end, and we wanted socialism in whatever form that may take to thrive. And with that, I got some... I got some experience as a sort of public performer, and uh, I still, you know, play these union songs uh, from time to time when I busk, and when I write, I I don't write as much as I used to nowadays, but when I write, I try to keep uh, a radical ideals uh, at the forefront.
1: Yeah, I guess, like, two things about that. Like, one is, it's so rare to hear anyone doing creative stuff nowadays to it's so rare for anyone nowadays to be like, you know, I keep radical ideas at the forefront. Most people are just like, you know, whatever comes out, comes out. Sometimes these characters or songs or poems, they have a mind of their own. But I, I really have never believed that. And I think, you know, you can do creative acts with, you know, radical ideas at the forefront. And another, th- another thing, too, I just wanted to ask was about, um, you know, you said you, you're you singing, you know, these old these older union songs. And I know the iww did this from time to time do you ever like um like you know change the lyrics a bit or update them or maybe make them applicable to the situation you're in at all
0: yeah yeah sometimes
1: yeah so like what are do you i mean i'm putting you on the spot a bit with that but like um any good examples you can think of of that
0: uh i guess whenever uh i guess union leadership at the time was mentioned i'd sort of sub out whoever they were talked about in which union they were associated with. I guess with current leadership, uh, like uh, the Joe Hill song "Mr. Block," uh, they mentioned Sam Gompers, who was the union boss for the American Federation of Labor at the time. And uh, and so I sort of
1: I believe he has a warship named after him now. I didn't know that.
0: That's that's uh, that's that's fucked up. But it, either way, uh, I sort of sub that out to current leadership, which is uh, President uh, Richard Trumka. Uh so I guess that's an example.
1: That's that's a really good example. No, I I think like that kind of thing is really interesting and like I think sometimes, you know, like covering so- songs like that can sort of be dismissed as a art form when I think, you know, it's something that is just as valid as any, you know, writing an original poem or whatever. Like it's, you know, just as creative in my opinion. Yeah, I mean it it's it, it's just creation. Yeah, exactly. And do you want to talk more about like your writing process when you said you like keep um radical ideas at the forefront of that like how how do you how does that like manifest for you i guess
0: well like i said I, I don't have much time to write nowadays and i don't write as often as i used to uh so my process has kind of been uh thrown out of whack so i'm not really able to answer that question at that time
1: no no that that happens that's that's understandable <laughs> so like what do you, what do you think of, you know, you said you, you bring the music to, you know, very like various events, um, and, you know, feeding the homeless. Like what, like what do you see as like the, the role and position of music now and like, um, contemporary leftist spaces as being,
0: I think music is often overlooked as a cultural weapon against, uh, I mean, in the fight against capitalism, uh, especially, uh, Nowadays, in leftist circles, we we have a lot of good uh, tactics on the forefront right now. Uh, I mean, democratic actions, strike actions, direct actions. But there's really nothing going on, I guess, in the cultural war, you know, beyond, uh, I guess, what the right thinks is a, is, a, is a war on culture with supposedly, you know, the left liking you know, hip-hop and just all these, you know, fucking racist and sexist and homophobic things that they say, uh, we don't really, uh, we don't really use music, you know, we don't sort of combat, you know, these 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 pop industries, we just sort of, I guess, allow them to happen, but, uh, you know, with that, with that, I guess we recognize that music has that sort of power, right? Because
1: no, no, I, you know, one thing when I was like trying to do some reading and stuff to, to talk to you about all this, something that came up, I forget where, which is, uh, I wish I could remember, but someone like came up, someone mentioned like, you know, you read a book and you maybe you think about it while you're reading it, but you know, you listen to a, a song you know sometimes songs get stuck in your head for you know months or the rest of your life and you know that kind of <laughs> that kind of power is is i think rare in a lot of art today where it just feels like you know like you scroll through twitter and you read like a thousand tweets and you you probably won't remember yeah, any of them
0: yeah yeah i mean a, a song definitely does have the the chance to stick in uh, in the human memory and uh with that you know i can tell you about the songwriting tactics of these you know early iww writers like uh, joe hill uh, Utah Philip mentioned that they're not necessarily great poetry, uh, you know, because you have the song dump the bosses off your back. And that's not necessarily uh, poetic or or fruity or sort of, you know, welcoming and pastoral in its language. It's just a it's just a direct thing. You know, are you poor, forlorn and hungry? Are there lots of things you lack? Is your life made up of misery? Then dump the bosses off your back. It's it's a command. It's a chant. Uh, and so when Utah Phobos mentioned that, they mentioned, they uh, he uh, pretty much said that they had to be simple because, again, the IWW organized a lot of workers who either couldn't speak English, didn't understand English, or they couldn't read and write. And so with that, you had to make the songs, you know, sort of simple and direct as such a command as dump the bosses off your back.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, you know sometimes i think it's really like as someone who like tries to write sometimes you know putting things simply and directly is a lot harder than it looks you know like a song that stays with me all, whenever like some a song that, like stays with me is you know which side are you on and trying to like come up with a message like or a chorus that that like just hits at the heart of the issue instead you know so, so with such a um, brevity is like isn't isn't it of itself like a really hard thing to do and i think you know as a poet like I look at that and I think yeah that's that's something I want to try and learn more from I guess
0: yeah I mean definitely I mean you can only say in so many words you know you are being fucked over you need to rise up and you know do what is right in order to give yourself and your fellow workers you know a better life with you know higher pay and shorter hours there's only so many words that can culminate that sort of feeling and getting them down to a just a few of them so that a lot of people can just understand and empathize. I think that is very uh, hard to do.
1: Yeah, no, I, I really think, um, I really think like that's a a lesson that, you know, on the one hand, I tend to think like you know, sort of like academic things are very important, but on the other hand, I'm always like, yeah, but, you know, is anything ever going to be as memorable as you know, which side are you on?
0: Yeah, no doubt.